we're in a series called Stories of Grace. And let's just start with that definition again. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. If you think about it, grace, the idea of grace itself is very countercultural. We live in a world that says what? You get what you earn. You get what you deserve. That's what the world's mantra is. You work hard, you earn, you reap the rewards. You study, if you study hard, you get good grades, which allows you to get good jobs, which allows you to get good money. And I know it seems simplistic, but that's the message of the world we live in. You get what you deserve. But if you think about the exact same concept, but on the other side, it's sadly true too. If you're poor, you will earn poverty. If you are sick, you will deserve struggle. If you are born of a certain race or ethnicity, you will be treated differently to others. So it's not just about the good, right? That's the motto of our world. If we take a moment to think about the world we live in, it's a pretty broken place. Um, I took these statistics from World Vision, which is a, a global charity. Uh, 689 million people uh, live in extreme poverty. Um, I think there's 7 billion people in the world, right? Uh, extreme poverty is defined that people survive on $1.90 a day. $1.90 a day. Now, it's hard for us to comprehend what that is, right? But your coffee was $5 this morning, right? Your, 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 your bread loaf was $4 this morning. People are living $1.90 a day. Children and youth account for two-thirds of the world's poor. And women represent a majority of the poor in most regions. 70% of people older than 15 who live in extreme poverty have no schooling or basic education. Now, I always say this, right? We in Australia, especially, we live in a beautiful, comfortable bubble, right? Where when we think of poverty and where we think of hardship, where we think of struggle is, oh my gosh, there's no parking today. You know, oh my gosh, city rail 10 minutes late again, right? Like that's, that's the hardest it gets, right? Like you go to the store, oh, I, I kid you not, okay, I have to share this story. This is, how, this is how spoiled we are. This is what we call suffering, right? My second favorite restaurant in this world is KFC. McDonald's is my first. And if you're the CEO of McDonald's, sponsorship right here, Okay. So KFC have this new thing that they brought back called the slab, right? Six buns, popcorn, chicken, cheese, sauce, barbecue sauce, right? That's what, that's what they serve in heaven. I'm just telling you now, okay? When you get to heaven, you will be eating KFC, right? Anyway, so I, I don't know about you, but I like food. And so I like to, I, 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 I G myself up because I was really excited, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go get it. So Monday lunch, I go get it. And I go to the counter. I go, can I have the slab uh, for, for, for one? Right? And they go, yep, you know, do, do, you know, transaction. And then I'm waiting there five minutes. And then 
the, the kid who was working there would have been 15, probably should have been in school, but probably didn't make it in school. So, you know, has a, you know, has a career in KFC, right? He goes, um, excuse me, sir, um, there's no barbecue sauce. I go, what? <laughs> it's like, um, we've run out of barbecue sauce. I said, there's four ingredients in this burger and you've run out of one of them. And he goes, would you like aioli or mayo? And I'm like, no, I would like barbecue sauce. And then the lady next, next to him felt bad for it. She goes, we can take the dipping sauce and put it onto the burger instead. Oh, no, thank you. I was so disappointed. That's how, that's how struggle we are, right? Now, I know we laugh at that, right? But that's our reality, right? That was the hardest thing that I went through this week, that KFC ran out of barbecue sauce, right? And yet, once again, I'm reminding you, we live in a bubble. Outside of our city and our nation, poverty is real. Struggle is real. Hardship is real. And what's sad about the world is this. It's not that just people are poor. People are broken. People are disadvantaged. They're marginalized. But they become worthless. And it's not themselves telling themselves, hey, I'm pretty worthless because I'm broken. But sadly, it's the world. The world tells them, hey, because you're broken, because you're a certain race, because you've got a certain amount of money, you're worthless. You deserve nothing. But what does God say? And what does grace say? And today I want to begin with a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Kings to a story of extreme poverty. And you'll, you'll, you'll hear why, the heart of God in this. So the passage is 2 Kings 4, 1 to 7. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors to empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left. It's a very unfortunate situation where a woman whose husband has died. And it was because the husband um, was trapped in some sort of debt. So the debt collector came and, well, you got no money. Well, I'm going to take your two sons as slaves, as payments. Now, in this day in age, the husband was the only source of income. And so when the husband dies, suddenly there is no income. And sadly, not only is there no income, but this husband was in some sort of debt. So the woman who has lost her husband is now about to lose her two sons. 
What's that telling us? She's about to lose everything. Everything that is of value to her. The little that she had. She's about to lose it. And the woman cries out to Elisha, a prophet, a messenger from God, for help. Like what else could she do, right? Like she's, she's got nothing. They're about to come and take her two boys. And we see this amazing story where she has this little jar of oil, a small jar of oil, and, and, and God just provides. It's like some kind of magic trick, right? Like just gets all the jars from the neighborhood, all in her house, and she, through this little jar, just the oil just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, and it stops only when the last jar is filled. And because of that, she's going to go sell that, saves her sons, pays off the debt, and has money to live. Right? And it's, a, it's a great story, but let me ask you a question. What if God did not intervene? What if that story was told and, and she went to the prophet Elisha and said, hey, I really need help. And Elisha said, I got nothing. I got nothing for you. Then what would have happened? What would have happened is what she, she would have got exactly what she deserved. Her sons would have been taken from her. She would have not only lost her husband, but her children. She would have had no income and she would have probably died in poverty, starvation. Right? That's what she deserved. And yet, what does she get? She gets life. She gets a favor. Did she deserve it? Did she earn it? No. And yet she receives it from God, and that's what we call grace. Now we think about the world we live in, and there are so many people that are broken in so many different ways. Uh, there's this word marginalized, and it's defined as the act of relegating someone to an unimportant or powerless position. To marginalize someone or a, a group is to make them feel worthless and on the outs of society. It's not just that people are poor and fragile, but the world makes sure that they know. People make sure that they know, and this is what we call being marginalized. Now, there are many different reasons why people can be marginalized, because of their race, because of their class, because of language, culture, ethnicity, gender, age, ability, education. Each of these factors can create a situation where someone can be made to feel less than and ultimately worth nothing feel like they're worthless, an outcast, that they're not worth anything. This is what the world does. Because the world says, this is what you deserve. You were born into a poor family? Well, you deserve to be poor for the rest of your life. You're born, you have a disability? Well, then you have to live with that disability. I'm sorry. That's what you get. And yet, even though the world says, this is what you deserve, God says, I'm going to give you something else. And God says that there is grace for the broken. Grace for the marginalized. If we look at the life of Jesus in the, Old, in the New Testament, Jesus didn't come to just seek the rich and the powerful, the famous and the fortunate 
But Scripture tells us that he came to seek the least. He came to seek the lost. He came to seek the broken. And we see this in his life, in his interaction with those around him, and he shows them grace. And there are five examples that we see um, about how Jesus uh, shows grace to those that probably well, that don't deserve it. Uh, firstly, Jesus welcomed children. Uh, in that society, children were just above animals. Uh, they, they were treated like nothing, worthless, useless, a burden on society. And yet Jesus, when he sees children, he treasured them and he welcomed them and he received and loved them. We see this in Matthew 19, 14, when Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What do cheese, what, what do cheese, what do children bring to this world? What do they earn? I look at my five, right? And I just applied my first son. We just applied for his tax file number, right? Which means he can go get a job, right? So now we're starting to see some fruit. Now my, my investment is starting to pay some dividends, right? But before that, right, they are just blood suckers. Right? They just suck the income, they suck the energy, the emotion, everything, right? And I know, like, I'm looking at James and Eugenia just about to have their first child, and it's a beautiful time, and I'm so happy for you guys. <laughs> but enjoy your sleep now. <laughs> and your basketball now. You know, children, if you think about what they, what they actually earn and what they deserve, it's nothing, and yet Jesus... Even in their helpless state, he valued them. Secondly, Jesus valued women. Now, I know we live in a, a different society, but back then, women were seen as second-class citizens. And what's sad is this. There are places in the world today that that has not changed. And yet Jesus, a Jewish man, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, he valued them. He addressed them. He met them. And that was so counter-society. He, he sat with the woman at the well. He interacted with women in his ministry. He healed women, even when the world said that they're not even worth healing. Jesus met them. Thirdly, Jesus touched lepers. Lepers were people that were uh, struck with the disease of uh, leprosy. Uh, lepers were among the most stigmatized people in Jesus' day. Uh, because of their illness, it was a very contagious illness. Uh, lepers would be totally excluded from the village and made to live in isolation with other lepers, and ultimately they were just cut off to die. And yet Jesus, instead of moving away from the sick, he moved to them. Mark 1, 41, 42, move with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. What's amazing about this story is Jesus has interaction with this leper. He could have just said, hey, be clean. Hey, disease, disappear. And yet Jesus goes the extra mile to touch the leper, to touch the man that is contagiously diseased. Jesus touches that leper, goes the extra mile. Something that you just weren't meant to do, and yet Jesus does it. 
He touched the marginalized. Uh, fourthly, Jesus accepted the Samaritans. Uh, Jews and Samaritans had a long history of mutual hate. Samaritans were the offspring of Jews that had kids with non-Jewish people. Um, what did they call it? They mud mudbloods. I know that was very dramatic. <laughs> Still very uh, inside of us, right? Um, Jewish people considered Samaritans as dirty and impure. If a Jewish, so, so, so Israel is a big nation and, and Samaria was right in the middle. And to get from the north to the south, the quickest way to go was to go through Samaria. And yet because they hated the Samaritans so much, they would spend three extra days to travel around it. That's how much they hated them. And yet Jesus, who would have known this, instead of staying away, he actually interacts with them and actually challenges even Jewish people to be like the good Samaritan. So Jesus welcomed children. He valued women. He touched lepers. He accepted Samaritans. And finally, he died for sinners. The holy God, the perfect sinless one, comes to die for the very people who sinned against him. This is grace. This is unmerited favor, that because of our sin, we deserve death, and yet we receive life because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love, own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus deeply cared for the broken. He deeply cared for the poor. He deeply cared for the marginalized demonstrating his compassion in many tangible ways. What they deserved was nothing. Children, women, sick people, Samaritans, sinners. What they deserve, nothing. And yet what Jesus gives to them is himself, the forgiveness of sins unmerited favor, grace. Let me bring this a little bit closer to home. We, every single one of us, is broken. It's sometimes hard to fathom this, and sometimes hard to swallow this, but we are all broken. One of the misconceptions about our faith is that we need to be perfect and good to be loved and accepted by God. How dare we be broken? And yet the total opposite is the truth. That we are loved and accepted by God regardless of our brokenness. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We are reminded that we are broken in so many ways. For some of us, we're physically broken. We are sick. We, we have medical conditions. Some of us cannot even be here today because of that physical brokenness. For some of us, we are mentally broken. Our minds are all over the shop to the point where we cannot control our moods and our attitudes. For some of us, we are emotionally broken. 
We have lost the ability to feel and control our emotions, and that ends up lashing out or suppressing what's going on in our heart. Some of us are relationally broken. We have an inability to have healthy relationships, and anyone we become close to, we either hurt or we hurt. Some of us are financially broken, so far in debt that we don't know where to go or where to begin. This is our reality. We are broken. Every single one of us is a combination of some type of brokenness. And yet, when the world sees us and says, your brokenness is useless to me, God sees us in our brokenness. And instead of throwing us in the trash where the world would send us, he treasures us embraces us and says, I can accept your brokenness. I can accept your messed up life and I can still love you. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And there's that phrase, we have this treasure, the treasure which is Christ. And we have it in jars of clay because we are jars of clay. We are so fragile. Like we try to act strong. We try to, you know, we come to church, right, and everyone puts their Sunday face on, right? And, and I reckon our church is a little bit better, right? You know, I think some of us, we just, we just, we just sort of accepted where we're at, right? But a lot of us still, we go to church and we, when we talk to people, and, and, you know, I have a friend here, right? I'm not going to mention his name. But when he asks the question, how are you? And you say, I'm good, he hates that answer. And he presses in and he goes, What's so good? And I think that's such a reality, right? When you come to church and someone says, how are you? Right? Our first response is, oh, yeah, yeah, we're good. Everything's fine. It's fine. But the reality is it's not. Some of us walk in here with so much brokenness. That even getting to church today was a struggle. Some of us are so broken that during fellowship time, you know, the time where we get to say hello to people that we haven't seen and, and whatnot, we're so broken that we close our eyes and pretend to pray so that you don't have to talk to people next to you. I know. I'm not one of them, but I know. Right? Some of us are so broken that you just you don't even want to think about it. Because you're thinking to yourself, if I show this brokenness in the world, in my workplace, in my school friends, 
Will it advance my career? No. You'll be cast out, unstable, immature, right? Financially unviable. That's our reality. But when the world says that you are nothing because of your brokenness, God says, I love your brokenness. I can accept your brokenness. I can embrace your brokenness. I was thinking about this last night. And I was thinking, if you can't admit your brokenness, right? If you can't admit that you're broken, then you have no need to be fixed. Which means you have no need for God. And not that we come to God to be fixed. We come to God to be loved and embraced. But if you can't admit your brokenness, which is the first step, right? If you can't acknowledge it, then you have no space for God. But it's the broken, the weary, the tired, the marginalized, the poor. God's grace is for you. In our fragile nature, we are broken, chipped, and fractured and can be destroyed in a moment. Isn't that the truth? And yet God chooses us to shine his light through jars of clay that we are. So how do we live then? How do we live knowing that we're broken, but knowing that we're accepted in our brokenness? And in 2 Corinthians 4, further down the passage, we read these verses in verse 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In our light and momentary troubles, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. God's grace for the broken, for the poor, for the needy, for you and for me. This passage is a reminder that no matter what you're going through, His grace says that it will end. No matter how hard your life is or what situation you're in, His grace says that it's temporary. And even though when we look around the world, it doesn't seem like the world's doing any better, and it's not. It's crumbling around us and destroying itself. His grace tells us that our eyes are not fixed here, but we have an eternity For those who believe in Jesus, we have an eternal glory waiting for us. And so we live with our eyes fixed, not on the brokenness of today, but on the glory that awaits us in eternity. Friends, firstly, when you see your brokenness, when you see your flaws and weaknesses, your addictions, your poverty, Remind yourself that because of 
God's grace through his son Jesus, whatever it is, it's temporary. And no matter how bad it is, it will end. And there is a greater glory that awaits us in heaven. So that's for us. But secondly, when you see others, when you see other people in their brokenness, we're called to see them not as the world sees them. We're not called to see, we're not called to judge them in the same way that the world judges them. We're called to see them in the context of eternal glory as well because the world will see them as useless and worthless and less than. And yet, in the eyes of God, in the same way God says, wow, you are precious, you are beautiful, you are wonderfully made, he also says the same about everyone else. Sadly, our level of charity and compassion has gotten to the point where all we do now is click. The best we get to is we click and donate, and that's our way of loving the world. There is no emotional connection. There is no spiritual connection. But you have to understand, real compassion isn't just a click. Real compassion steps into their situation, just like Jesus stepped into ours. Jeez, just like Jesus stepped into the broken. We're called to step into the brokenness of the people around us. You know, and we do this in many different ways. Can I tell you a few examples, right? So Cambodia. Right? Cambodia is still a poor nation. They're a third world nation. We, you will be shocked for those that have not ever been to Cambodia or have never been to a third world country, you will still be shocked at the level of poverty that exists in this world. The idea, the idea that kids on the street are literally going through rubbish, not just because they're bored, but because they're hungry. That still exists today. It seems so foreign for us because we live in our bubble. Right? Our biggest problem with food is we eat too much and it's like whatever happens afterwards, right? And yet the reality is there are still so many people in this world that they don't know where their next meal comes from. I'm telling you, sending money over is one way, but it's the first step. We need to learn to step into it. St. Paul's Anglican, they run a... Um, parish pantry and and four times a year we get food together and we send it to them right and that's fantastic right that's one step into it but if you've never seen it for yourself if you've never and 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 this is crazy right because it still exists even in our streets people are lining up to get a handout and it's got nothing to it's because they they don't have money they don't have food we're not talking about third world countries, right? We're talking about down the road. But it's one thing to donate food to the church and then we take it over. But what's the next way that we can step into their context? If we understand the heart of God and that there is grace for the broken, meaning that there's grace for you in your brokenness, and you understand that heart of God is not just for you, but is for the person next to you as well. 
then when we speak to them and when we interact with them, we're called to understand them, not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, who values each and every person in their brokenness. Let me finish with this. I personally am so proud of our church community. I think we do this well. I think we acknowledge our brokenness well. I think we're you know, generally good at coming to church and going, well, this is just who I am. And I think we're so good at embracing the people around us as well. And I just hope for us we can continue that and continue that not just in these uh, four walls but out into our community. Because the world tells the community that unless you're rich, unless you're famous, unless you've got something to offer, then I'm not going to give you my time. And God says, even when you have nothing to offer except your brokenness, I will give you my time and I will give you my life. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of for the broken. Let's pray.